This episode touches on and discusses sensitive topics, including sexual assault and suicide. These are sensitive topics for many people, and for some, it can trigger intense emotions and thoughts. If you or anyone you know are struggling with these topics, please contact a healthcare provider immediately. And if somebody's safety is in immediate danger, please dial the emergency number for your area. In the UK, it's 999. Thank you. Welcome to the Rep for More Mindset podcast. I'm Yar. As a peak performance coach and lifestyle architect, I help women who are ready to reach their next level, eliminate negative self-talk and break through what's been holding them back so they can have clarity, confidence and prosperity in their career and lifestyle. This podcast is to empower you with a mental more mindset and help you reach your next level so you can uncover your purpose, reclaim your power and reach your potential. This means no longer living by default but dreaming big and pushing yourself to be, do and have more. I want everyone to know that change is possible, that you are not alone, and there is an alternative way forward. Because when you change your mind, it will change your life. Hi guys, and welcome to the next episode of the Mental More Mindset with me, Yah. Today, I have the lovely Sybil Arman with me. Sybil, please introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you. I am a filmmaker and that's how I I met you because I was filming you Um, but um, I'm from the Seychelles and I came to England when I was seven and a half and I've been living here since Um, I'm 55 years old and uh, yeah and I live in East London. Oh I love that thank you Um, now tell us something um, about you that most people don't know. Okay, something that most people don't know. I'm very open, so that's quite hard. But let me have a quick think about something most people don't know about me. I think most people don't necessarily know that I go swimming very regularly. Um, So I go swimming um, like almost five days a week if I can. And sometimes it's even at six o'clock in the morning if I can't get a 7.30 slot. So... I start my day swimming, which I just love. Oh wow, you're really dedicated. So, are you would you call yourself like um, like a water lover? Love water, yeah. I love swimming. Oh. Um, I must say, I I'm a bit I'm not that brave at cold water swimming, but I love swimming in swimming pools. <laughs> it's easier. Um, yeah. I just love doing the crawl. That's my favorite stroke, oh. um, and I find it really meditative. Oh, wow. So what's meditative about it? Well, um, before actually, before I used to um, use it as a time for me to problem solve, actually. So if I've often got projects, more than three projects in one go in my head. Um, So I used to use the swimming time as a way of um, focusing on some of the maybe the dialogues that I get from people talking um, from the interviews and then sort of in my head, I'd sort of work out where they go. Um, So I used to do that a lot, probably did that for about 15 years, actually. Mm. But most recently, I've been trying not to do that, funnily enough. I've just been trying to just enjoy the swim rather than problem solve. Um, So it's only like in the last two years since I started reading um, Eckhart Tolle's work that I realized actually it's probably quite a good time for me just to not think. Um, so that works sometimes and it works in other, other times. It, it doesn't work. 
Um, <laughs> but I'm trying to do, be less of a problem solver while swimming and just swimming now. So I'm learning and I'm not quite there yet with that. I love that. But And how is that working out for you? It's working out good, actually. Yeah. Um, I just love swimming anyway. So um, I just find that if I'm not problem solving, I'm... I just feel like I'm probably more there and I feel a bit more awake afterwards. So it's really helping, actually. Yeah, it's um, it's a nice thing to do because um, I think sometimes it's, you don't have to always be problem solving. And sometimes things come to you without you having to go into every detail. So, yeah, it's working better, actually. I, now I think of it, I've not told anyone this before, funnily enough. It's, you're the first person for, who... I've said that out loud. It's something that I've been doing and I haven't even told my partner about, actually. So that is definitely something no one knows about me. <laughs> oh, that's, that's really, that's really, really, really cool. Um, so when you introduced yourself, you told us that you were born in the Seychelles and you came here to when you were seven and a half. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yeah, um, so I'm from a really big family. Um, um, there's actually I'm the youngest, um, and there's actually there's there was eight eight of us, mm. and I've got a half had a half brother and a half sister as well. So there's actually ten wow. in our family. Because I'm older, I'm 55. Some some of th- I've had three of my siblings die, mm. um, um, but. Um, when I came to England, I was seven and a half, the youngest, and my mum had married my stepfather, who I hadn't met mm. yet. So I met him at the airport. <laughs> um, and I came with my brother, my two brothers, who were uh, 13 and 14, and my sister, who was 10 at the time. And we left some of our older siblings in Seychelles because they were older and wanted to stay. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, we there was four of us, um, and my mum and dad, my mum and stepdad, and we moved to Muswell Hill mm. in North London. Um, and yeah, that was the first time I came to England. Wow! And how was that experience for you, like leaving? somewhere that you used to call home to move to a new home it was it's something that I've been processing ever since to be honest actually wow. and I um actually yeah I remember one of my first creative writing exercise um uh, um it, it was it was asking me to do something autobiographical and I chose actually to write about my journey from Seychelles to England and it was interesting actually how I told it because I was only 21 at the time when I did that piece of work and I remember what I actually wrote was quite interesting because my older sister who was just three years older than me 10 she she was fixated on bringing her doll with her to England Um, and we both had these special dolls that my mum had sent from England and um, she had hers and I had mine and I just loved mine. But I remember it was a really interesting thing because I was only seven and a half. And I remember thinking, I wouldn't bring a doll. I don't need my doll. And um, and I was like, why is she bringing a doll with her? You know, I don't need a doll. I can just go to England on my own without my doll. Mm. And um, she bought her doll and I didn't. I left my doll behind. 
And actually, when I came to England, I really missed that doll. Oh. So I think it, that's why I think I told that story. That's why it was so autobiographical, because yeah. maybe there was something in there about how, you know, I, I sort of imagined that England was somewhere that was paved with gold. And, you know, I'd heard all this thing about the motherland and, yeah. and everything. And actually, when I got here, I realised I missed Seychelles a lot. And maybe the doll was what symbolised the Seychelles yeah. and people that were there that I'd missed. So... I didn't speak the language, actually. Mm. I didn't speak English. So that became something big as well. So I had to learn English. Yeah. Although I don't really remember the process of learning it. As a child, you just take it in, don't you? Yes. Um, but, yeah, it's it, it was challenging, I think, being in England from the Seychelles. I'd had a bit of a challenging time in the Seychelles as well. It wasn't it wasn't all sun and glory. Yeah. Um, um, so we brought our challenges with us yeah. <laughs> um, as well. But yeah, felt quite, quite sort of alien at first, if I'm honest, mm. looking back on it. And in terms of those challenges, are you okay to share a little bit about yeah. what those challenges I'm, I'm very open and um, I find that if you open up, it's really helpful for others too. Yeah. So um, I, ha I don't sanction any of my experiences anymore. Mm -hmm. I find that the most challenging experiences are actually the ones that I've learned the most from. So I'm very happy to talk about them because I think that's how we learn. Yeah, I agree. So what were the, what were the challenges for you? Well, when I was younger, um, my mom had quite uh, an abusive relationship with mm. her uh, partner when we were in the Seychelles and she sort of almost had to run away from him. Wow. So um, he was quite a tyrant, um, mm. very, very, um, a very authoritative person who, yeah. um, who was known in the Seychelles. Seychelles is very small, so everyone okay. knows a lot of things and he was abusive to my mom and us as well mm -hmm. um, and so we bought we bought a lot of our history with us when we came to yeah. England but it wasn't spoken about at all yeah. until I was a bit older and then I started um, it came out it came out in lots of different ways it's come out in lots of different ways in my whole family to be fair but for me, it came out when I was um, 21 and I ended up, uh, I was training to be a psychiatric nurse and I ended up in psychiatric hospital myself wow. um, because um, of the trauma that had been hidden inside me mm. and I hadn't let it out. Then how do you go from being a psychiatric nurse to actually being in a psychiatric ward to becoming a filmmaker? How does that journey happen? Yeah, well, I am 55, so <laughs> it's taken a while. Although, to be fair, actually, the, the filming side came quite quickly. So, yeah, so so basically I was a psychiatric nurse mm -hmm. and I'd been doing it for two and a half years, actually. So I was towards the end. I wasn't a psychiatric nurse, I should say. I was a student psychiatric nurse. Okay. So I hadn't quite finished my training. Um, and I was doing a project on sexual abuse uh -huh. because it interested me, of course, yeah. as it would. Um, and um, and when I did that project, it brought up a lot of things that had um, been in my head, in my body for a long time, and I hadn't yeah. really let it out. So having that project really unleashed something in me. Uh -huh. um, 
and um and then I became psychotic quite quickly afterwards um and um and then I spent three months in psychiatric hospital um I was sectioned um and had very um, challenging time but also some very good times I must say it wasn't all bad mm -hmm. I met some very very good friends when I was in psychiatric hospital I met loads of people who I adored and you know felt really connected to actually mm -hmm. um, so I wouldn't say it was all bad actually although it was difficult the medication was very difficult and yeah. there were there were very difficult experiences too um, so when I came out of hospital, um, I found that they didn't want me back as a psychiatric nurse because mm. back then, let's think back then, that was like 35 years ago, mm. or 34 years ago. It was so stigmatized to be a psychiatric patient. There was no way they would let me back as a psychiatric nurse. Mm. Um, so I did fight to try and um, get reinstated, but that didn't work. And so I had to let that go. Yeah. Um, and then the following year, I had another breakdown. Mm. So, so after being in hospital, basically I was psychotic. So I was manic. And there's elements of mania that's actually fantastic, actually. I felt very powerful. I felt um, exhilarated, in fact. I felt like I was in a different reality and I was exploring my world. Yeah. So there was a lot of mania that I, I, I relished, actually. Um, but then when I came out, you know, I was on my own. I'd split up with my family. It had all gone bad with my family and... And so I was on my own um, and I got very depressed. Um, and then um, literally, literally a year later, I started feeling manic again. And I was like, hey, great. I'm not feeling depressed anymore. Yeah. But then it exhilarated and got worse. And then I went into psychiatric hospital for another three months, wow. sectioned again. Um, and then when I came out, what happened when I came out? I was, I was quite depressed actually when I came out. But but one of the good things is that uh, I'd been made homeless during my period of being in hospital. Mm. So when I came out, I had a social worker and I did get a council flat. Mm. A social, and social housing was one of the things that actually really helped me in my whole life. Yeah. Um, and I'm still grateful to that because like, this is still my social housing place. And I love it. Um, and um, so after that, I went back to university. I had been at university before, um, but I'd um, dropped out. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing psychology before. So when I came, when I went back to university at University of East London, I did cultural studies, mm. which was great. I just loved it. And I explored the main subjects that I talked about was women and madness. During, and it, it was such a great cause because it allowed me to explore that fully yeah um and it was great and during that time I started to find a bit more about filmmaking mm -hmm. so I used filmmaking as a way of exploring some of my issues with other people who I'd met in hospital um so, yeah, so I finished my university degree. I did complete that, which was great for me because I'd gone through my life, like, at that stage, not completing anything. So it was great to actually finish that. Um, 
And with my friend that I'd met in psychiatric hospital, Jan, Jan Holloway, she was an occupational therapist, um, but she, she hears voices. Mm. And um, it was the first time she'd been admitted into hospital. It was the first time she heard voices. Mm. Um, so we made really good friends. And because I was a student psychiatric nurse and she was an occupational therapist, we bonded because we were supposed, you know, supposed to be professionals. So she shouldn't mm. have been in there. Um, but we created, we got, we had a great friendship, a lifelong friendship. She's still one of my best friends. Um, but we ended up doing a training package together mm. and using film. She's a great artist using film and art. We did a one day training package called learning from psychosis. And we brought that training to lots of social workers and psychiatric nurses around the country. And we did that for seven years. Wow. It was um, for Jan. She continued working as an occupational therapist. She we just so we did probably training twice a month, two days training twice a month. Um, and she continued. Um, she still became she was still a, uh, an occupational therapist until she retired. So, yeah, so that you can see the transition happening. Yeah. So basically I was doing the learning from psychosis using art and then oh, actually after my degree at University of East London, I did an MA in a television documentary at Goldsmiths. Wow. Which was quite amazing because it was only like uh, I think they were only accepting five people from um, the UK. Wow. Um, there was only like about 10 people on the course and they have room for five for the UK um, people. And I got in. I was so impressed. Um, yeah. And that really helped me, the the MA, the mm -hmm. training that I had. And I did some films during the course of, of the MA. One of them was called Four Other Stories. And that was about people who were... Um, from a, a, a psychiatric background mm -hmm. who were also artists mm -hmm. so yeah that's why that that's why it was called four other stories and um i've got an, i've got a new film fund as well wow um to create another film actually and then we did another film called two other stories <laughs> um and then and then after that, I did a lot of stuff in mental health, to be honest. So I did loads of art exhibitions. Like I did two art exhibitions at the Stratford Picture House about mental mm. health. And they were great. Um, and um, then I met my partner uh, in 1998. I met Russ, who mm. was also had been in University of East London. And I'd known some of his friends, but I'd never met him. Yeah. But he was also interested in film. So um, we got together and in 2002, 20 years ago, we, um, we set up our own production company called wow. Flexible Films. And that's 20 years ago. And um, because like, you know, I said that being having had social housing was a key thing in my life that really supported me. Um, in fact, um, in 1998, there was regeneration going on in Plasto, and um, I did get some work with the architects as well, but um, they then asked us to make a documentary about the regeneration, wow. because they knew that we were, new, we were students and we just started out, and then we ended up making 12 films for Newham Council wow. over the course of like two years, two or three years, 
and they really helped us actually and that started the ball rolling to us being filmmakers proper filmmakers and then because of my um my speciality or my experience in mental health, I, I wanted to do more in mental health. So I did lots of, we did lots of work for mental health media mm. at the time. They've gone, they've, they no longer exist now, um, but that was really helpful for me. Um, and then um, it, it was actually in 2004, we worked with Oxley's NHS Trust mm-hmm. and we, um, we set up a filmmaking group for the trust. Yeah. And um, and we ran a film group, a therapeutic film group, which we're oh. so proud of. And um, although the f- we, we ran the group for 11 years, actually, um, and we ran it voluntarily for five years, too. Mm-hmm. And then in the end, we, we you know, had run its course. Um, but we still meet the group um, twice a year because, you know, there's like 16 people we made friends with and made friends with each other. And in fact, we saw them last Friday for our picnic. Oh, um, so yeah, so we're still great friends with them. Um, so although I'm a filmmaker, yeah. I see myself much more as a, a filmmaker that's more into community and mental health issues. We don't really do anything that's for TV as yet. And I don't necessarily have the aspiration to do that. Yeah. But um, my recent passion, as you know, is because um, I... I read Eckhart Tolle's work and The Power of Now, um, and I read that two years ago. And since then, I've been wanting to spread the word and make it more accessible. So we are now doing a documentary about Eckhart Tolle and the impact his work has had on different individuals. And I've filmed nine people so far. And yeah, you are one of them. Um, And I think that brings us to the present day. Yeah. And so what I was going to ask you was, um, how has that work impacted you? The Eckhart Tolle's work. Yes. It's really, oh goodness, it's really um, made a big difference to me, I mm-hmm. think. I feel that, um, you know, like you, like because I've interviewed you as well, mm-hmm. like you, I've always had a passion for self-development and mm-hmm. learning. Um, and, you know, my past experiences has taught me that it's really important to think about others and yourself, really. So I've always had that mindset, to be honest, but it was after my mum had died um, in 2020 mm-hmm. and um, my, um, my, lots of my family caught COVID at that time. And it was a time when COVID was scary. Yeah. Um, and and my, my sister and brother-in-law had it really bad. Mm-hmm. We had it really bad too, actually. Um, and it was around Christmas and New Year. Mm. I don't know if everyone remembers that in 2020, at the end of 2020, it felt very bleak. Mm. Um, And it felt bleak because we were ill, but it felt the world felt bleak and scary and uncertain. And I absorbed all of that in. Mm. So then I picked up a book that my friend had given me a long time ago called The New Earth. And Mm. that was um, Eckhart Tolle's second book. And I read it from cover to cover. And um, it was the one thing that helped me. And I was so glad to actually have COVID because I had the time to read it from cover to cover. And it just felt it spoke out to me completely. And I could, it was things that I'd already 
sort of knew about and understood, but it said it in such a simple way that it, it made it very different. And the thing I think that really latched, really helped me the most probably is the idea of the uh, pain body yeah. and the pain body being separate from me. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I always knew I had challenges. I always knew that, you know, I had therapy for four years as well. And that yeah. really was really helpful. So I, I had looked into my own self. Um, but when he talked about the pain body, it felt different the way he was talking about it, because it felt like it was different from me. It was separate. Yeah. And that separateness really helped me. It helped me visualize my pain body. Suddenly, my pain body was something I could see and that really helped me yeah. um, and the fact that I could see it made me more aware of it but it also made me feel like I could also detach from it yeah. and that was a big revelation actually um, and I think since then I have been trying to live more in the present yeah. in the now and trying not to worry because yeah. um, I think I was a constant warrior actually um, and sometimes the worry wasn't bad. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm planning for the future. This will happen. That will happen. And it was like, yeah, yay, party time. You know, I look forward to that party when it comes. So sometimes it's not a worry. Sometimes it's just anticipating the future. But mm-hmm. I suddenly saw through that. I suddenly saw that actually doing all that stops me from living. Wow. And it's been had a profound effect on me, actually, I must say. I don't know if others have experienced if, you know, I'm different. I'm not saying that. But for me, I feel a lot more peaceful. Oh, wow. That's amazing. For those people that don't know, how would you describe the pain body? So the pain body I would describe as, well, it's, it goes back to when Eckhart, in The Power of Now, he talks at the beginning about how... Um, he had a big revelation, which was um, he'd always been quite depressive and suicidal. Mm-hmm. And one night he woke, he, he was, it was in the middle of the night, you know, in the middle of the night, it's always your worst time, isn't it? You're mm-hmm. almost like at the peak of despair sometimes, if you are in despair. And he was then. And then he was thinking, I, I can't live with myself. He started mm-hmm. thinking, I can't live with myself anymore. I can't live with myself anymore. And then he suddenly thought, hang on, I can't live with myself anymore. Does that mean there's two of me? Mm. And then he started realizing that he had two of him. And he had one of him was his ego, which is, can also be described as the pain body yeah. as well. Um and so the other part of himself, he, he realized was not him. Mm. And he realized his core self, the I, I cannot live with myself. I is his core. Yeah. And that's the pure bit of you. That's the bit where, you know, you don't feel guilt. You don't feel worry. You don't feel anger. You don't feel pain. You just feel at one with nature and others. Um, it's the ego, the pain body, that is the one that's always dancing around, teasing you, mm. triggering you, <laughs> you know, prodding you to do yeah. to be the best you can be, or to be better than this, or to have money, or to to have um, have things that you know you envy of others, you know. Yeah. 
his core self, the I, is something that he hadn't quite been in tune with and he suddenly started getting in tune with. So the way I would describe the pain body is to say it is the ego, mm -hmm. um, but the pain body is possibly the parts of you that is in pain that has has that pain has sort of condensed itself into this part of you mm -hmm. and and because it's not expressed because because it's still it's still vibrant almost it's still living because you haven't dealt with it you know, you haven't nurtured it, you haven't nurtured that pain in you. So it's still alive and kicking and prodding you and punching you every now and again. And things trigger it. Things trigger it. Like if someone says something like, you're fat, you know, so, you know, most, most people would think, oh, they, they're just being nasty. But if if um, like my pain body, I would react really badly to that, because that's how maybe I see myself. So yeah. Um, and then but within that within that I'm fat thing is a massive thing which is you're ugly you're you know you're a victim you're uh you're someone who can't help themselves or maybe even you're someone who's really angry and who wants to create pain yeah oh wow so so I'd say the pain body is all of that it's all the bits of you that you haven't dealt with the bits of you that you still hate maybe mm -hmm. and experiences that you've had that have been very difficult for you to process you keep in that pain body wow. and you you hold tight to it actually and you don't let it breathe mm -hmm. and I think whenever you don't let anything breathe it becomes toxic and stagnant and angry and um confused yeah and you I don't know what it is well, it's, it's so true. And so then how, how you learned to nurture that and resolve that for yourself? Well, I did go to therapy for four years mm -hmm. and I, 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 I put my hat out to my therapist. She was amazing. She really was. I don't know where she is now, but I'd like to say thank you to her. Her name was Jillian mm -hmm. and she was really, she really helped me. Um, so going, let's, let's go backwards a little bit, which is when I was in psychiatric hospital and I was an outpatient, um, I was told I had to be on medication for the whole of my life. Um, I had to take, they said, you know, I had a serious problem, bipolar it's called now, it's manic depression then. Um, and they wanted me to stay on lithium for all my life. And, um, I found lithium very difficult to be with. It just it just made me feel numb rather than it made me feel more depressed, if anything. And I actually really liked being manic. So I, you know, it really suppressed me. And I didn't want to be on it for all my life. But then my psychiatrist said, okay, Sybil, don't worry, you don't have to be on it all your life, just five years. Five years. So okay, five years. So I took lithium for two and a half years. Mm -hmm. And then I went to my psychiatrist and I said, actually, can I start coming off this lithium now? Because I don't really like it. Um, and then she said, no, no, Sybil, you, ha you have to be on it for life. That's when she told me. And I said, hang on, hang on. You told me five years last time. Um, and she said, no, I told you five years to make it easier for you. It is actually a life thing that you have to do. Mm. And then I said, oh, actually... 
if you have a prison sentence, you you'd only do half of it, wouldn't you? So I've done my two and a half years. <laughs> I said, I've done my two and a half years. So why would I do five years? You know, um, I've done half my time. I need to start coming off it now. I want to start weaning myself off it. So how can you help me with that? And she said, I'm really sorry. I can't help you with that. It was a point blank. I can't help you with weaning yourself off it. And I was like, well, that's not good enough. And she said, she said, yeah, she said, I'm sorry, I can't do it. And I said, oh, well, in that case, I don't know what to do because I, that's what I want. I want to start weaning myself. And then she said, well, um, sorry. And then I said, well, in that case, I think I might have to just discharge myself because. And then she literally said to me, Sybil, the next time I see you, I think you're going to be in psychiatric hospital. So I walked out of that room devastated, thinking, what am I going to do? I'm going to have to keep on this medication or otherwise I'm going to I'm going to be, you know, on my own again. And at that time, I wasn't seeing my family. So I was sort of quite on my own. And um, and then three months later, I thought, oh, sod this. I'm going to just just take myself off it myself. Wow. That's what I did. Um I, I, I didn't necessarily wean myself off it, actually. I did, I did come off. Probably I wouldn't advise that. But, but what I did do was I made sure that my therapist knew what I was doing. And I did, she was one person I could trust uh-huh. um, that if she was to say to me, Sybil, I think you need help, I would have listened to her. I don't think I would have listened to any of my friends necessarily at that stage. Um, so I made a bit of a commitment with her to that, I only, I only saw it once every two weeks, but I made a commitment with her that I would listen to her if she thought I needed to go back into um, the psychiatric care that I'd been receiving. Mm-hmm. So um, then, yeah, I, then I, I, I had therapy for four years and she helped me and I didn't go back into the psychiatric system ever again, really. Wow. They didn't contact me either. (laughs) They didn't actually say, are you doing okay? Somehow I just got off the list and then I didn't, I I was no longer a psychiatric patient. Maybe because you were doing so well. Um, So what's one thing that you wish you would have known at the beginning of this journey? Oh, that's a good question. Um, One thing that, would have been good for me to know at the beginning of this journey was that others um, have similar experiences as me. Mm. At that time, um, 34 years ago, no one spoke of sexual abuse. Mm. Um, In fact, my social worker, when I was on my tribunal to get out, to, 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 to have my section lifted, my social worker said, that she thought I was making it up. Wow. You know, that we've, we've been through a transition in time, which maybe, you know, young people don't, can't really comprehend, yeah. but the transition in time is that sexual abuse was not believed at all or spoken about. Yeah. Um, so um, one thing I would have said to myself then is you're not alone. And that, that's possibly why I'm being so open now, yeah. um, because these are experiences that I had that I should never be ashamed of. I was a, you know, five year old child, you know, why should I be ashamed, you know, but I was. 
I was very stigmatized by it and I felt it was me that had created that yeah um, and but if if other people if I'd known that other people were the same had experienced that same thing maybe I would have I would have felt a bit more like less intense about it yeah yeah oh. <sighs> yeah you're probably um a bit surprised because you knew me as a filmmaker you didn't know me in my yeah. best no, but I think it's great that you're sharing your story. And that's what I was going to say is like, thank you for sharing, because just like you said, it's by sharing that we actually help others. And I found that in definitely in the work that I do, not to the extent of, you know, abuse, but definitely in terms of hearing other people share their stories, mm. it allows us to realize, oh, I'm not the only one. Because I think a lot of times people are stuck in situations or places they don't want to be because they feel like they're the only one. And by being able to realize that they're not the only one, it actually opens doors for them that they didn't realize were actually open for them. I think that's amazing. And thank you so much for sharing. Um, so I'm going to switch yeah, tight a little bit. And I want to mm. ask, what motivates you to get up and go in the morning? Well, um, I do go swimming. <laughs> so I suppose that's a good thing. I tend to wake up and think, oh, I'm going to go for a swim. Mm -hmm. So... Um, but um, I love my job. Yeah. I just adore my job, really. In fact, I don't really see it as a job. I see it as a life, mm. you know, because um, I'm very, very, um, I'm very privileged, I think, because, you know, we've created a business for ourselves, myself and Russ, and we work for ourselves. And um, I see, I see all our clients are, are different bosses, but they're lovely bosses. They seem to be yeah. more partners, really, than bosses. Yeah. So we don't really have a boss. We just have to, um, you know, motivate each other. Um, and we're very lucky because we get to meet the most amazing people. And I actually, I think, you know, with filming, like you probably, what you're doing now, yeah. um, with filming you tend to have conversations you wouldn't normally have, yeah. you know, with strangers often, with people yeah. you've not really met and they really trust you. Yeah. And then they open up to the extent, like probably I'm opening up now. Um, and we get that all the time. Yeah. So we do, uh, most of our work is in mental health. So we get mm. to meet lots of really interesting people who have had different stories. Mm. Um, um, so yeah, what motivates me is, it's just living I think actually oh. it's just you know what's um meeting people actually probably people is what motivates me oh and what about people motivates you um do you know it's hard to answer that question because actually I really love meeting uh people at the bus stop for example yeah. or even I love um walking down the street and me and Russ we do tend to every time we see a baby for example you know we talk, try and catch their eye and sort of smile and and you know get them to wave <laughs> probably look weird but um so I love strangers actually and there's sometimes people I don't even say you know have a sentence with mm -hmm. um so what motivates me about people is the difference, perhaps, mm -hmm. of everyone. Everyone's yeah. so different. Yeah. Um, and I think I'm a curious person because, um, yeah, 
I think everyone's different. I I I think one thing Eckhart has has changed, not changing me, because I think I've always had a bit of that, really. But I think it's really important to not not judge people. Yeah. And I think it's essential to not um to not categorize people as well and to to see people as different from you. And I think it's really important to mix with people that you are different from yeah. and maybe you don't even agree with. I think I, I I worry that, you know, I think in the whole course of history, there's always been um, separation in groups. Yeah. Because I think people find it hard to know where they belong. Yeah. And I think... I actually think that by separating and saying I'm in this group, not in that group, you feel a sense of belonging. But I also think that can be quite, quite dangerous, actually. Um, and it, it, it creates can create war, yeah. which, which it does do. And I think I think at the moment I'm just slightly concerned that um, at the moment uh, tensions are really high. Mm -hmm. People are. Um, I feel a sense of some people are a bit lost, maybe. Mm. Um, so I just try not to judge. Yeah. Um, and take people as they are. Yeah. And I think that's what creates oneness. So, um, well, yeah. And that that's the ultimate goal, I think. Yeah. I've I should also say I didn't didn't say it actually, but I've always always been interested in the subject of death and dying mm. since I was very young. So basically I had um my dad died when I was very young. So maybe that's possibly why I was only uh, four when he died. So I don't know, I've got I've always had an interest in death and dying. Mm -hmm. And when I was 21, I went to India. And um, I found um, a book called The Tibetan Book of Living and Dying. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in India for three months and I read that book from cover to cover. And again, it really changed my life. That, well, that's another book that really changed my life. Mm. Um, and I was healthy at the time. I was 21. So I was young, youthful. I didn't have much bereavement that I knew. You know, I didn't have that many people who had died other than my my dad um and so I was in a healthy space in a way um and I read that book and I remember thinking this is a subject I need to think about now when I don't have to yeah. um and actually I read actually you can everyone knows this you can die at any time yeah. you don't even have to be ill to die yes. you don't have to be old to die mm -hmm. people die young as yes. well and um, I took that on board really deeply, actually. And um, I, I sort of took it my mission that it was something that I really wanted to talk about. So um, I've supported the Death Calf, who is a movement that is pop-up events that get people to talk about death and dying in a safe space. Mm -hmm. um, so I support their work a lot. So I do a lot of pro bono work for them. Um, and I'm also part of a uh, second time, second year running. It's a exhibition called um, not exhibition. It's a, a festival, an, an online. And now it's it's it, there's some stuff that we're doing face to face as well. It's a festival called Lifting the Lid, um, and it's a festival on death and dying, and it goes on for three days in November. 
and I'm also uh, we're also filming in Ilford Library um, on the day of uh, on November the 5th in Wanstead they've got the Day of the Dead festival there in Wanstead Library and we're filming with our magic video box um, we're filming um, people talking about death and dying wow and why is that so important to you because I know you said you're fascinated by it, but why is it so important to you I actually think it's one of the most important things to talk about. And I've, I, mm-hmm. I sort of, I'm curious as to why we don't talk about it, mm-hmm. actually. Um, I think that when I was young, I used to always think on my deathbed, what would I think of in my, of my life? Mm-hmm. Would I be proud of myself or would I, you know, would I have regrets? I, I was so much someone who never wanted to have regrets for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe I saw adults who had regrets. Maybe it was something that I didn't want. Um, so I've always thought it's the most important subject to talk about. Um, but I've now realized that it's hard subject to talk about. Um, but um, I think if you make it, it's about life and death, mm-hmm. not just death. Then you put the two together it it creates meaning in life if you understand that you are you have got uh you're not you know you've got a deadline yeah (laughs) you've got a time when you won't be here Mm -hmm. and actually in the whole course of history we haven't been here really we're only here for 100 years probably max not a long time in history yeah so it just makes once you think about your death I think it makes you sort of um look more at your purpose of your life Mm. and I think you need to sort of acknowledge that you will die in order to do that and it's been the most useful thing for me to have because um, I want a purpose you know I don't want necessarily to for people to remember me Um, when I die I die I, I actually think the afterlife for me is not something that I need to know about or even have evidence for or or I'm not interested in what happens to me after I die mm-hmm. I leave that to the universe I don't think our um I actually don't think our humans brains can comprehend any of this afterlife business so I I don't even go down there I just talk about I just talk about death and talk about life I don't talk about death and talk about afterlife um so what would you say have been the resources that have helped you along the way you mentioned um books but what would you say are other resources that have helped you the resources that helped me were people um on my journey I think Jan and my friend Jan Holloway I'm seeing her tonight she's DJing in a um in a a bar tonight so I'm seeing her so I'm still very good friends with her she's probably been on my biggest resource actually because mm-hmm. with her I could really talk about mental health about my anxieties her anxieties too and we shared in a way that I don't think you we would have shared if we hadn't been troubled so much mm-hmm. so she's a major resource and of course Russ my partner he's really solid always solid behind me he's learning about Eckhart now too and we're both realizing that he has mental health issues too so um, like everyone has you know Um, so we're both learning from him as well of his own mental health too Mm -hmm. Um, um, 
I think in filmmaking, though, my biggest resource is the magic video box because mm. we um, we basically um, created it um, about seven years ago. And um, one of our clients, it was mind, actually, one of our clients said to us once, they said, oh, could we have films where people are looking directly into the camera lens? And mind were asking me this. So we it was films on mental health. So people yeah. talking on camera about their mental health issues. Yeah. I was like, you've got to be joking, haven't you? It's hard enough to get people to comfortably talk to camera with me sitting at the side of the camera and getting their eye focus and getting them comfortable. You know, it's a big deal for them to talk on camera. You now want them to talk directly into that camera lens. Yeah. No way. Um, that was seven years ago. And then Russ looked online and we um, discovered that um, it's possible to do. Um, but at that time, seven years ago, the way you did it is you had two cameras mm -hmm. so in the room. You have two cameras. You have one camera set up to another camera and you monitor it. More equipment. And I thought mm -mm, our clients aren't going to like that. They don't, we try to pretend they're not being filmed, you yeah. know, two cameras now, no way. So then we, we set out to create our own box that made people comfortably look into that camera lens. Oh, and, wow. um, and so it started off as a storage box with another tripod. It, it had its own life. Yeah. Um, I joke actually that me and Russ don't have children, but instead we created a box and it took a lot longer than nine months. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it did take a lot longer, um, but eventually we got it right. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we launched it in 2019, just before COVID. Wow. In November 2019, we launched the Magic Video Box because we hire and we sell it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it wasn't a great time to um, launch something. As we know, the whole film industry stopped. Who was to know that was going to happen? But actually, what we realised was because of the setup of the Magic Video Box, mm -hmm. we realised that actually, because it's a 90-degree angle, um, it's actually COVID-friendly as well because yeah. there was no risk of anyone um, breathing into, that, into your space because there's yeah. a divider. And what we also realized actually after, you know, before COVID and after was actually the box, um, as well as makes people look directly into the camera lens, I've, we found it actually relaxes people because it hides the camera. Um, yeah. And we found that people just talk so openly. Like, for example, we were doing a project with uh, Muslim women for Mind in Tower Hamlets recently. And one woman said to me, uh, uh no way I'm not going to be filmed that's that's definitely not me mm -hmm. and then I said to her why don't you just come next door and see the setup and see what you think yeah. and she came sat down looked into our box and then I showed her because she sees the reflection of me rather than the camera yeah. there's a divider and and I started talking to her and I said oh you know what do you think about this box and then she said oh yeah, I can do this. I'll I'll be filmed. Don't worry, I'll be filmed. And then she talked to me for 55 minutes. Wow. And actually, she talked to me about um, very traumatic events that she'd not told anyone. Mm. And um, 
and pe I've told this story to a few people and they say, oh, Sybil, you're a good interviewer. That's why. That's why she talked. Uh -huh. And I said, there's no way she would have told me that. I only knew her for 10 minutes. Uh -huh. But she told me some, you know, yeah. you know, quite difficult things. And now, so what I do now after that experience is I tend to, if I can, and I've got the resources and the capacity, I tend to give people their full interviews. Yeah. And I never used to do that before because um, I find that it's really therapeutic for people to receive their full interviews mm -hmm. um, and I say to people, you don't have to watch it now. You can watch it in 10 years time, maybe if you want. Yeah. But what I find if people do, the feedback I've had for people who can watch it is that they're very surprised at what they say. They're really surprised at how they are. Yeah. And because they're looking directly into the camera lens, they're talking to themselves as well. So I've had some amazing times with people who have told me that talking to themselves has been one of the biggest healer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's actually our biggest resource, I think, the Magic Video Box. And we, um, we've we been nominated for Gear of the Year, actually, in Pro Movie Maker Mag. Oh, um, wow. And so, yeah. Um, so what I want to ask you next is, what is your greatest fear? I tell you what, I don't really like driving on the motorway. I got my, I had my, I, I basically, I passed my driving license when I was manic mm -hmm. <laughs> at the age of 21. And then I had a car ever since, you know, for about a year. And then I stopped driving for mm -hmm. like 20 years. And now I drive, I do drive when I have to, I, when I have to park the car, but my partner drives, Russ parks, the, Russ drives most of the time mm -hmm. and I'll drive if I need to. And actually, I'm okay when I drive. It's yeah. the whole Eckhart thing of yeah. the fear is actually when you're thinking about it. And actually, if I've got the music on and I'm driving, I actually think it's okay. But I think I'm still fearful of the motorway driving. Definitely, I'm fearful of that. I understand that. I really do. <laughs> and um, conversely, what excites you the most about the next 12 months? I'm very excited generally, actually, about the next 12 months. Mm -hmm. We're going to Amsterdam next week. So um, we're going to Amsterdam for a trade show. Um, I think what excites me the most is like trying to um, trying to present the magic video box um, in a way that is not just for filmmakers, mm -hmm. because I've got a strong belief that any, you know, Anyone can be a good interviewer. I I really believe that strongly. And actually, sometimes in projects, I'm not the best interviewer, really, because um, I think sometimes someone's peers might be their, the best interviewer because they'll talk in a different way. It'll be a different type of interview. Um, so my biggest excitement, really, I think, is to try and get the Magic Video Box not just seen as a toolkit, but as a communication tool. Yeah. And I think that's what excites me. But I am very excited also about um, the Eckhart Tolle documentary that I'm editing because I've finished filming for it yeah. now. Oh, and um, we're going to launch it in December in Stratford Picture House. Yeah. Um, I am very excited about that, but also a bit daunted because I haven't really started editing it yet. <laughs> So I always feel like that at the beginning of a project. That, yeah. But um, once I get started, I, I'm going to be very excited.
Yeah, I'm sure it's going to be amazing. I can't wait to. I well, what wait. I've said, what I've said to myself is, it might not be amazing. It is what it is, and I'm going to treat it like another project and just, you know, just have a relationship with it and do my best with it, mm-hmm. but not exactly think it will be amazing because I, in the way, I think. If, if it sets out to just um, be something that helps people um, find out more or be inspired to find out more about living in the now, yeah, um, that would be good enough for me. It doesn't have to be the best film I've ever made. Yeah. And I, but I think doing your best is what is what makes it amazing is because you know that you did the best that you could do. And I think, exactly. yeah. 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 So I look forward to, to editing that. Tomorrow, we finished filming two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. So I said I will start in two weeks. Fantastic. <laughs> um, what advice would you give to a woman who wants to go to her next level, but isn't sure where or how to start? So the next level in anything that is, isn't it? Yeah anything yeah I would say it's hard to do things on your own Mm. I think you can read books and um you can be helped by books like I was you know it's really good for me to read but I would say seek seek friendship or allies or um seek people Mm -hmm. I think that's where changes happen when you you have and it could be online it doesn't have to be face to face you know maybe someone in the next level is really ill for example and you know um they might be they might be ill to the point where they may not think they will recover for example but you know people are always there and actually this is the beauty of covid i think that's brought us the idea that we can do things um online as well because you can always find people um so my advice would be find a way of finding people somehow yeah oh thank you and is there a question that I haven't already asked that you would have liked me to ask I I didn't see my family for four years Mm -hmm. um and that was a difficult time for my family uh, when I was younger it was a difficult time for me as well, but it was something that I had to go through in order to reach my next level, which was to um, to be more at peace with myself. I needed to separate, mm-hmm. and um, and actually, I found I found that my relationship with my mom is so much was so much deeper as a result because I didn't have so much anger towards her, yeah. um, and my family, my sisters, my brothers. Um, and I'm so grateful that I had those four years separate. And actually, my family are lovely. They're really lovely people. And they accept that, that yeah. it was okay for me to have four years separate. Mm-hmm. Sometimes in life, you have to do things that are um, that's look like they're going against the grain. That doesn't look like you're going on your journey. And your journey is not linear. It's not something that just grows and grows and grows and grows and you get better and better and better. I don't think so. I think sometimes you go this way and then you go backwards and then you go downwards and then you go even under down. And then you, the next is another shoot that goes up. It's never linear and we should not expect to just grow. Yeah. 
um, I think we I think we put too much um, emphasis on growth myself. Mm -hmm. um, I think you grow from hardships and challenges and and actually you learn the most from your challenges. So don't expect growth to just be up, up, up. <laughs> yeah, so true. So, so true. And finally, what gives you a meant for more mindset? I just feel that I'm connected to others and I'm connected to the universe. I'm not religious. You know, I don't have religious beliefs, but I really believe that I'm connected. And I think everyone's meant for more. But I think because I really know and feel that I'm connected, um, I think that, yeah, I'm meant for more because I feel that connection. Oh, thank you so much, Sybil. Um, this has been such an amazing interview. Thank you for being so open. Thank you for being so giving. Thank you for being so sharing. Um, thank you for... Um, your connectivity and um, allowing us to see you so that um, other people can not only listen to your story but learn from your story so that they can be in a position where they can grow and also realize their purpose and their goals so I just want to say thank you so much for being you and I really 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 appreciate it Thank you. And thank you, Yar, for interviewing me. It's, you know, I've not had such an in-depth interview. I'm normally on the other side, um, but I've really enjoyed talking to you as well. Yeah, me too. Um, can you please let our listeners know where they can connect with you online? Our production company is called Flexible Films. So mm -hmm. um, you go to our website, which is flexiblefilms.co.uk. Um, and I'm on LinkedIn as Sybil Arman as well. Um, so, yeah, I'd love to hear from anyone who, who thinks I could be of interest of help or help. Brilliant. Thank you so much again, Sybil. Guys, that's it for this one. We shall see you in the next one. Take good care. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. For more about me, what I do, check out my website, nextlevelcoachinggroup.com where you can also download my free Release Your Mindset Blocks Guide. You can also follow me on Instagram at Next Level Coaching Group or on Facebook at Next Level Lounge. Please make sure you hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave me a rating and review. Thanks. See you on the next one.